Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That portion of God's word which we consider this morning, the Holy Spirit caused the evangelist John to write for our comfort and learning, Jesus changing water into wine, but we also look to this passage of Hebrews which we read in Jesus' name. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us pray. These are your words, Holy Father. Sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. <clears throat> the popular apologist C.S. Lewis once said, I never went to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. Well, it's kind of a neat point. There is a certain truth that God doesn't promise you earthly happiness. This is contrary to a lot of Christian preachers, such as Joel Osteen. Don't be deceived by his beautiful teeth. He wrote a book called Your Best Life Now. Your best life is not now. You believe in the life everlasting. Your best life is when the resurrection of flesh comes and you feel no sin in you at all. And so, yes, we who would follow Jesus must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. We must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. And yet, it is not true that God wants us to be miserable on earth. I know that people use the excuse, God wants me to be happy, to justify all sorts of horrible things like leaving their spouses and children or doing some evil thing. But we can't go and throw the baby out with the bathwater. The fact is that we need joy to live. And Christ comes to give us that joy, and he shows us this in his first miracle at Cana. Jesus first manifests his glory not by stilling the storm, not by healing lepers, or making the blind see, or the deaf to hear, or the lame to walk, or even raising the dead. He first manifests his glory at a wedding by changing water into wine. God gives wine to gladden the heart of men. That's what the psalm says. Jesus shows his divine power to make people happy about life, about marriage, about him. Jesus is the son of God. He is the one who made Adam fall into a deep sleep. Jesus, before he was incarnate in the garden, took a rib from the side of man while he slept and formed a woman. And it was Jesus who brought the woman to the man. Jesus was present at the first wedding. Before sin had stained our flesh and made the man and woman ashamed to be naked. And so now he shows his glory first at a wedding. The significance of this should not be underestimated. Jesus is sanctifying and approving of marriage by attending this wedding. He is teaching us not to despise this very ordinary arrangement 
Because although it is common, yet it is a miraculous and mysterious institution since God makes out of two one flesh so that they are no longer two, but one. Since a husband and a wife are one flesh, they also share in each other's sufferings in the flesh. The union of a man and a woman was necessary before the fall. God saw everything they had made that it was good, but then he said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, after the fall, marriage is even more necessary, not only because of our sinful lack of self-control, but because of the suffering that sin brings with it into our lives. It's good not to do it alone. Now, the result of our culture despising marriage to pursue each man's and woman's individual dreams has resulted in marriage being even more difficult for us today. It is hard for Christians to find Christian spouses they can live with. It is hard, once they are married, to live a Christian life with fewer and fewer examples of good Christian marriages to support them and encourage them in bearing each other's burdens and raising children with the word of God. Marriage has been assaulted on every front. It is said to stand in the way of our own dreams or to be merely the culmination of romantic love, a spouse being a mere means to fulfill your desires rather than being one flesh with you and someone for whom you give up your desires. To summarize, don't believe anything Disney teaches you about marriage. Children, too, a great blessing, are considered a commodity or a burden, a small and unnecessary part of the union of man and woman. And so marriage has even been redefined to include any sexual union of anybody to anybody. Creation doesn't matter to the world. While the world uses God's creation only for sensuality and not for the glory of its creator, People speak of gender instead of sex, as if the way we are as men and women is a mere construct that restricts our lives from being fulfilled. The devil vaunts and parades his lies and control over our culture by getting men and women to mutilate themselves, chemically or otherwise. The liar even gets parents to mutilate their children through hormone therapy. Who is not aghast, who has a conscience? Who is not aghast, who believes in a creator? at what the devil is doing to us all around us. The creation and its purpose are despised because the creator is despised. And the source of all of our troubles is finally that we, like sheep, have gone astray and worshipped and served the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. But people blame the creator. They blame his design. And so they twist and pervert what he has made to do with it whatever they please for no purpose, certainly not for love. These horrors happening in our own towns and even families are not a distant problem that doesn't affect us. They are the very real power of the devil to corrupt and destroy what God made and called good. <clears throat> so we must fight against the lie that God's creation is not good. I encourage you every day, every morning when you wake up, it's a wonderful way to start the day to say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Because you are saying that against your flesh, which wants to use you for whatever purpose it wants. You are saying that against the world, which denies the purpose of your body and your mind. And you are saying that against the devil who wants to destroy what God has made. But how do we fight against this lie that God's creation is not good? 
when we ourselves are stained and corrupted by sin, by lawlessness, when the flesh we have that God joins to our spouse is full of selfish and sinful desires, when the world offers only help to corrupt us further, when even the churches ignore the purposes of marriage and of our bodies out of fear of offending feminists and fanatics who teach that men and women are interchangeable in every aspect of life on earth except for reproduction. And so it seems that marriage is losing and that we are failing. But Jesus is not afraid of the enemies we face. He knows them. That is why he appears at a wedding and manifests his glory there first. He loves his creation. He is not afraid of our sinful flesh, or why would he come pure as he is in the likeness of sinful flesh? He's not afraid of the world, or why would he be found in a world of sin and sadness and walk among us? He is not afraid of the devil, or why would he enter into the world to destroy that devil's power? So we must look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We must fix our eyes on him if we would escape the sin that so easily entangles us. We must look to him if we would fight even an inch against the sin that we see in our lives and the evil that we see around us. We must ask ourselves, who is this man? Why is he at a wedding? And why does he change water into wine? And why does he first manifest his glory at a wedding by changing water into wine? Well, first Jesus appears as an ordinary man. This is a continuation of how God wants to be viewed. To whom did God tell in all the world that his son was born? To a bunch of lowly shepherds. Where was Jesus laid as a baby? In a manger, a feeding trough for animals. God wants us to find him in a humble man. Because this man is the only God and we can only find God as he humbles himself to be with us. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the beginner of faith and the finisher of faith. And he begins his ministry on earth, his works and his miracles, by appearing at a wedding. Everything that he will do, driving out demons, arguing with the Pharisees, suffering slander and spit and nail and wound and spear, everything, the tone for it, the purpose of it, he sets by appearing at a wedding where there isn't enough wine. The wedding feasts would last a week in those days. <clears throat> Sounds like a lot. I'm not saying you guys have to do that. For the feast to run out of wine was not just a huge embarrassment for the young couple who was married, but it was a sign of bad times ahead. Could they afford to be married and raise children if they couldn't supply the expected provisions for their family and friends? What joy is waiting for a couple that doesn't have enough wine to gladden the hearts of those who attend their wedding? Many people avoid marriage today because they say, oh, first we need to get everything set up. We need to have enough money. We need to have a house, have a 401k or whatever. Here you see that Jesus appears as an ordinary man in a very bad situation. He attends a wedding that fails to meet with the expectations of men. A wedding that does not offer much hope for the future. A wedding should be a happy affair, but already there isn't enough for what men need to be happy. 
So his mother sees this, and she goes and tells Jesus they have no wine. Here we have an example of a good Christian woman. She goes and tells Jesus the problem. In times of lack and sadness underneath the cross, which presses down on you and shows you what you lack because of sin in the world and sin in your life, then the first person to go to is this ordinary man, Jesus. Follow Mary. But Jesus seems to rebuke his mother. He says, woman, what is that to you and to me? It's a Greek expression. He translated, what, what does your concern have to do with me? Now, woman here is not an insult. <clears throat> it's like, it's a compliment and confession. In fact, I love calling my wife woman. She's my woman, and I'm her man. I think it's a good thing. Any woman who's offended at being called woman, I mean, what's your problem? You don't get it, right? But she's, he says it is a compliment that he calls her a woman. Once a woman thought that she did not have enough, though the whole garden was hers, every fruit of the tree except for one thing. And she grasped at what did not belong to her. But Jesus belongs to Mary. And when Mary sees a very real lack, she acts as a woman should. She goes to Jesus. She depends upon him. Jesus re responds by saying, what is that to you and to me? He divides their roles. What is Mary's job here? What is Jesus' job here? Jesus' hour has not yet come. Mary can't determine the hour that Jesus helps. We cannot set a time and limit to how God relieves us of our crosses and the pain of life. Mary does not take Jesus' words as a reason to slink off and pout and feel sorry for herself and throw up her hands and say, I tried. Instead, she takes to heart what Jesus says. What is that to you and to me? And she finds what it is to her. She goes and tells the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. So she doesn't stop. She doesn't walk away when Jesus says, not yet. But she goes and acts on the basis of who she knows he is. So we, prepare, we have to do this when Jesus tells us his hour has not yet come. We prepare ourselves and everyone around us to wait for Jesus and to listen to him because his hour comes when we don't expect so when you pray to Jesus, and he does not seem to hear you, you don't get immediate relief, but instead you see what a great difference there is between you and this ordinary man, between sinful, weak, doubting you, and the sinless, strong, confident him, then you must remember Mother Mary's words and actions. Remember that she kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. She kept the worship of the shepherds in her heart, and the words of Simeon and Anna in her heart, and she pondered them and kept them. She drank from them. She rolled them over in her mind and her heart. She knew how to wait for, with the word of God. As David sings, I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. Because Jesus is still there at the wedding. Jesus came to the wedding. He came to the place where there was not enough. He came to the ordinary life of man. That is where he decides to show his glory in these ordinary places of our lives. But I don't have enough for him. They, didn't, they invited him, and they didn't have enough for him. So maybe you have invited Jesus into your life. So many of the fanatics talk about, you need to invite Jesus into your heart. Make him the Lord and Savior of your life. Well, if you have tried to do this, then maybe you have seen that you don't have enough wine. 
You don't have enough for him. You can invite him all day long, but you will never have enough for him. You will have your sin. You will have your weakness. You will have your shame. You will have your failure in times past and your fear of the future. You won't have enough wine, enough joy to meet him. But if you are baptized and you claim him as your Lord, then he must also be at your wedding, in your marriage, in your lonely home, ready to comfort your sad and fearful heart. Always invite Jesus, especially when you don't have enough. Jesus begins to show who he is at a wedding. Don't forget that. The ordinary celebrations of life can too soon end or be soured by the lack of resources. These are no impediment to Jesus. Christmas festivities transform into post-Christmas blues. But Jesus comes when there is lack and he brings an abundance. He tells the servants who had been prepared by the faith of Mary to do his bidding, fill these things full of water and draw it out and take it to the master of the feast. And the water became wine, the best wine. I actually heard somebody argue one time that Jesus changed water into grape juice. Now, grape juice didn't exist until the late 19th century. It was invented by a Methodist. But, you know, setting that aside, grape juice isn't the best wine. It's not even wine. That's why you should never commune at a church that uses grape juice instead of wine. Jesus didn't use grape juice. It didn't exist. And Jesus didn't make Boone's Farm. He didn't make Mogan David fortified with grain alcohol. He made ridiculously good wine. The master of the feast marveled. And he called the bridegroom and said, everybody saves the, uses the best wine and then, and then gives the, after the people have drunk well, then they, he gives, they give the, the other wine. He said, you have saved the best wine until last. Now, a couple of things. First of all, Jesus saves the best wine for last. So weeping may endure for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. He always saves the joy, the best joy, until the end. He always does that. Secondly, who gets the credit for the good wine? Who gets the good wine and who gets the credit for it? This poor bridegroom, who people say wasn't ready to get married. And now he has enough and more than enough. He has a wine that nobody else has ever tasted. Therefore, this ordinary man, Jesus, is not so ordinary. This ordinary celebration of a marriage is not so ordinary. And marriage, though ordinary, is extraordinary. And your lack is not the end of hope. And your fear of not having enough is not justified if Jesus is. Look at how gently Jesus begins his ministry for poor sinners. How sweetly and tenderly the almighty and all-powerful creator of heaven and earth, whom we have offended so many times we can't count, whom the world rejects and ignores, Look at how tenderly and sweetly he shows himself in flesh for poor sinners. He begins his ministry in the same way that he begins your faith. He gives you hope with joy. He speaks and changes what is bland into what is sweet and gladdens the heart of man. He takes and creates out of nothing and gives you what you couldn't give yourself. He shows in the midst of a cross and trial and crisis and suffering that his purpose on earth, the same reason he came and joined us in our misery, was to give us joy, to comfort us in every affliction. 
So yeah, C.S. Lewis didn't go find religion to get happy. But Christ found me to make me happy. To give me joy in the midst of every trial and sorrow. To give me hope in every dark place of my life. He changed water into wine. And he did so to make you happy. That you might trust him. You might look to him for every joy. For your greatest joy. For your only joy that will last when all other joys disappear. He is the author, the beginner of your faith. You don't begin your faith. You don't reach inside of yourself and try to find some reason for believing. No. If anything, you abandon your natural powers and look only to this man. And he begins your faith. He establishes the rock. He is the rock on which you can stand against everything you are afraid of. Your sins, the wrath of God, death, the loss of anything that life can throw at you. His hour came when he faced the real burden of your life and everyone's life. The sin inside of you that stains you, that makes you afraid of God, that teaches you to lurch after joys that pass away and pleasures that fade. But his hour came when he faced a lack in you, a lack in the whole human race, when there was not enough wine, not enough joy, no hope, only fear of the future and of death, but he faced it for the joy that was set before him, for the joy of marrying you, his bride, his church. He endured the sorrow and punishment of fear and agony and pain of the cross. And he changed the death that is so ordinary to us into the joy that is extraordinary. The joy that no one can take from you. Because it lasts through suffering, death in the grave, and rises up innocent and fresh and pure. He went to the cross. He met that hour of need with everything you need. This is no mere man. This is the God that man has rejected and changed into all sorts of idols, imagined was evil, ran away from. He was despised and we esteemed him not, but we need him. You need him. You need him in your life. And he betrothes himself to you in love. He joins you to himself by speaking, by laying down his life for you cleansing you and washing you with the water with the word so that he might present himself you, your, you to himself as a glorious church not having any spot or wrinkle or any such thing so that nobody, not the all-seeing God not the all-knowing spirit of God and certainly not Jesus himself can see any spot in you and with this word that he speaks and that he pours on you in your baptism. He changes your heart from one that is afraid and uncertain into a heart that is filled with joy. To know that the God who made you is at peace with you. That he is with you in all trials, in every suffering, in the darkest places. To give you more than what your sins have taken from you. He gives you himself. Water pours not from stone pitchers, but from his flag, blood from his side. And he creates a new bride for man. He is the new man. And you are the church who believe in him and are baptized. You are the church made from him in his sleep of death. Straight from his side where the blood and water flow. But he rises and the Father brings you to him. And Jesus says this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. 
All that is mine is yours. You are bone of my bones that are risen, and flesh of my flesh that is pure. Your sin was mine, but now it is no more. And there is wine to drink, and I call it my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, my pledge of peace that I love you, and I'm with you always in every need and every lack, even unto the end of the age. And he who began your faith will finish it. You must trust in him to do this. There is no sadness, there is no need, there is no lack that he did not come to get rid of and replace with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, as St. Peter says, looking to the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Began his ministry with the joy set before him, by giving his joy. And he will end your life when and where it pleases him, when and where you need it, by giving you a joy that faces death unafraid. And that same joy that will face death unafraid will face every challenge of life, every evil the world throws at you, every alarm your flesh sounds. You will face this in all heartache, not alone, but with him who has called you his own, who has bound himself to you with promises pure and true and unbreakable, with him who is with you always, even unto the end of the age.